Well, good evening. We uh, just came in from Springfield, Illinois. We drove down. We were quite busy leading up to this time. We'd like to have gotten in yesterday evening, but we just made it in this afternoon, and we count it indeed a blessing to be here with you. Thank you for the invitation to come and to speak and to worship with you, and thank you to the elders especially for the decision they've made, and to you, the congregation here, for supporting us in the work in Springfield. James has been among us in Springfield, James Mayberry, and uh, uh, we're very happy to see him again and to be with him in his home. Thomas Goodall has been with us in Springfield, and he was there shortly after we had started the work, and we are growing and thriving. We're up to 15. (laughs) And so it's been a while since we've worked with a group this size, and so it is indeed a blessing to join in and to hear the singing that we're hearing tonight. What a, what a blessing it is, and, and no doubt God is well pleased with the sound and hopefully with each one of our hearts. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. will be the springboard for our talk, for our discussion tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to pick up reading and, and through... Out the evening and tomorrow I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Maybe a little bit different than yours, but surely we'll, we'll see the same, the same point that the, the writer is making. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, probably a passage that's familiar to most of you. He says, Who then is Paul and who is apostle but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. But now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Now we could read on for the text, but what I want us to focus in on this evening, and what a profound thought it is, What a profound concept from verse 9 is that God gives us the privilege of being fellow workers with Him. And that's going to be our focus tonight. If you're taking notes, the title for our lesson is God's Fellow Workers. Now, before we jump into discussing what's involved in being a fellow worker with God and what that work is that He wants us to join Him in doing, first of all, we understand the concept throughout the Bible that God wants us to be active. God wants us to be busy. He wants us to be workers. In fact, in the beginning... When God created man and placed him in the garden, instead of like the misconception that many people may have, it's the Garden of Eden. You kick back and relax and everything's wonderful. No, He placed them in the garden and He told them to tend and to keep the garden. He wants us to be active. He wants us to be productive. And so it is also in His kingdom. In His kingdom, He tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 that He created us in Christ Jesus for good works. And so he's not talking about the creation there of back when God made man in the beginning. He's talking about the creation, the redemptive work that He accomplishes in Christ Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, when we repent, when we're baptized into our Lord, it is then that He creates us for good works. 
And so God wants us to work. We understand that. Over and over, He has told us that in Scriptures. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, in Titus chapter 2, again, a familiar passage, He says in verse 11, For the grace of God um, that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and goes on to say, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. That word zealous comes from a word in the original language that carries the idea of to flame, to be on fire. And so, we are to be on fire for good works. Not that this is the point of our lesson, but as a side point, you think maybe sometimes God is disappointed? That He redeemed us. We, we don't want to go to hell. We don't want to suffer eternal destruction. And so, we, we, we call out to the Lord. We render obedience to His Gospel because we want our sins forgiven. We want to be saved. And then we've got what we want. And we come to services on Sunday. We read our Bibles occasionally. We do some good things. Hopefully that doesn't describe many people. But I'm afraid sometimes people get the concept that they've got what they want and it's just coast on in. We are to be zealous, he tells us. Zealous for good works. Many other passages show that we are to be busy for the Lord. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. He uses an analogy that they would have been familiar with during that day. He says in verse 20 of 2 Timothy 2, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the Master, prepared for every good work. And so if we will turn from sin, if we will keep ourselves separate from sin, He tells us that we will be like that vessel of honor in a great house, that we are set apart for the Lord, that we are set apart for good works. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, after speaking of the resurrection, how that our lowly bodies are going to be called forth from the grave, and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed to be incorruptible and immortal. He tells us that therefore we are to abound in the work of the Lord. So we understand, do we not? We understand that we are to be busy. We are to be active. We are to be productive. We are to be zealous. We ought to have a burning in our heart for the good works of the Lord. But what are these works that He wants us to do? Well, We'll not spend our time this evening talking about all the different kinds of works that God wants us to be busy doing. We might summarize some of those in Galatians 6 and verse 10 that we are to do good unto all men, especially the household of faith. We are to, to put on the characteristics of Christ. We are to worship the Lord. We are to keep ourselves holy, so on. But what I want us to focus on tonight is back in our context in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 9. And in the context, of course, he's speaking in this immediate context 
of how that God is the one who is to be glorified. He's actually rebuking the Corinthians here because they're exalting Paul and they're exalting Apollos. They're exalting the apostles and the workers among them. And he's trying to point them to God is the one who is to be praised. God is the one who is to be exalted. Who are we? And the question shouts out with an answer, we're nobody. We're merely workers for the Lord. That's the context. But in that context, he also says, for we are God's fellow workers. What an idea. You and I. God allows us to be workers with Him, or at least workers for Him in helping Him to accomplish His greatest desire for man. And so what is that work that God wants us to enter into? What is that work that God wants us to do? Brethren, you and I get the privilege of helping people to be saved. Have you ever watched the movie, The Rookie? The one with Dennis Quaid in it? And he's been kind of down and out and, and, and he's discouraged down there in the minor leagues and finally he goes and watches a little league game and he remembers why he's playing baseball and he comes back the next day and he's got a big smile on his face in the locker room. He says, boys, you know what we get to do today? We get to play baseball. Brethren, you know what we get to do? We get to help people come to know the Lord, to have their sins washed away, and to be saved. We ought not to fear that. And we ought not to neglect it. It is a privilege. We get to help the Lord to help people to be saved. Now, I'm not going to be sharing anything with you this evening that probably you don't already know. So, I have no profound thoughts. But as our brother prayed for us, and as I met him sitting back in the pew just before we began our worship service, and he mentioned his name, I heard that voice and I said, I bet you sing tenor, don't you? (laughs) But um, as he prayed in his prayer, that was supposed to be a chuckle at that time, put up the sign. (laughs) As he prayed in his prayer at that, as, as we began, is that, we might look into our hearts that we might have it in our hearts, something similar to that, to do the Lord's work. We need to go back and we need to look into our hearts and we need to examine them to make sure that we understand these even basic things. The first thing that I want to discuss with you is we need to understand. We read the verses over and over again. We've got the words down. We've got the knowledge but we need to grasp it in our hearts that the world about us is lost. Like I said, nothing profound, but yet that is profound. The world around us is lost. What does that mean? We need to realize that when we sin, every one of us, when we sin, we fall under God's condemnation. Romans 3, verse 23, and all of us have sinned. And so the world about us, and we ourselves, until we are baptized into Christ Jesus, they're lost. We were lost. We need to realize what a terrible thing that is when we are lost and we are separated from God. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. If we die in our sins, we cannot go to heaven. 
Jesus, in speaking to the Jews who did not believe in Him, in John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8, He spoke to them saying that they would die in their sins and where He was to go, they could not come. Verse 21. John 8, verse 21. He says, Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek Me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said to Him, or the Jews said, Will He kill Himself? Because He says, Where I go, you cannot come. And He said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And so, the world about us, if they die in their sins, they're not going to go to heaven. But we could pause and we could spend not only the rest of this time, but we could spend a long time in talking about how wonderful the heaven is. The beauty, the blessings of it. Being in the presence of God. But we're focused right now on those who aren't going to go to heaven. And if they die in their sins and they do not go to heaven, we know what's going to happen to them, brethren. They're going to go into that eternal punishment. The lake of fire and brimstone. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he speaks in context about that God is going to repay the the ones in Thessalonica who were persecuting the Christians at that time. And in that context, he says in verse 7, that when Jesus comes, and He's going to come, He, he, he will give you rest who are troubled with us when the Lord... Let me read it the way the New King James Version has it. And to give you who are troubled rest, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. These shall be punished, He said, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And so, we've read the Scriptures, have we not? And if you've not read the Scriptures and you want to know more, please ask any... Greg, raise your hand in case somebody's visiting. Greg right here. Ask him. He will be happy to sit down and to visit with you and talk to you about what the Scriptures say. But I'm fairly certain most all of you know the verses, know what the Bible says about the horrible, the horrible state, the horrible place that is called hell. In Matthew 25, he says that is a place that's prepared for the devil and his angels. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, he says that the devil and the false prophet are going to be cast into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And in verse 15 of Revelation 20, he says, and those not found written in the book of life shall have their part in the lake of fire and brimstone. How horrible. How horrible to think of spending eternity in hell. That's the dilemma of those who are lost. And God wants to save them. God yearns to save them, we might say. He's not willing... 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, He's not willing that any should perish. For God is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
God didn't create us to cast us into hell. God didn't create us even to die. But there's an adversary. And we come into this world in the middle of a battle. And it's not God's will that any die, that they perish, and that they're separated from the Lord. He is long-suffering and He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, after speaking about how that, that we should pray for those who are in authority and those who are leaders, that we pray that we'll have a quiet and peaceable life, he says, for this is good and right in the sight of God and men who desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Ezekiel chapter 33. Let me pause for a moment. You're turning in your Bibles. And I'm going quite quickly. And I want to commend you. And I apologize if I'm not giving you time to get there because it is the Word of God that is true. And amen. You keep turning. You keep verifying all the time when anybody stands before you that what they're saying is indeed the truth of God's Word. So I apologize for moving a little quickly. That was 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. And then also in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11, he tells us there that he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. It does not please God, no matter what anyone has done, no matter what movement they've led against the Lord and, and how they've shouted that there's no God and Jesus is a false prophet, no matter what they've done, no matter what they say, God is not willing that they perish and He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we know this is true not only because He said it, but because He has shown great love and mercy in providing salvation. John 3.16 For God so loved the world. This is how God loved the world. That He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Romans chapter 5, verses 6-9 through Romans 5, verses 6-9, through 9, where it speaks about the demonstration of God's great love. Begin reading in verse 6, he says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one dare to die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. This is how we know God's love. This is a demonstration. It's not all talk. He has acted upon it. He has done for us. He has given Jesus His Son because He's not willing that any should perish. The penalty for death, for sin, had to be paid. And God must remain holy and He must remain just. So He gave His Son as His sacrifice to die so that we could be saved. In Ephesians chapter 2, again, He speaks of the magnitude, the greatness of God's love. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, It says, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
Notice the the adjectives and adverbs in verse 4. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. His great love. The richness of His mercy. God wants people to be saved. I don't think we can grasp it. I question whether we can understand the depths of God's yearning for people to be saved. They're lost. They're under His condemnation. They are bound for eternal destruction and He's not willing that any one of them should perish. For those of you who are taking notes, our next point is, He trusts us to appeal to them. Now, let's consider that for a moment. He trusts us to appeal to them. God has ordained only one way that people can be saved. Oh, we hear a lot of different things. When we talk to our religious neighbors, when we sit down in Bible studies and we try to lead people to an understanding of the truth for their salvation, we hear people talking, we get ideas that it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It is a... um, Uh, Because people have been born with Adam's inherited sin, it takes a spark, a working of the Holy Spirit to even create any interest. And so, there's nothing we can do. We're saved by faith alone. We're saved through God's grace. It's a gift. There's nothing you can do. Those are the kind of things we hear that are adverse to what the Scriptures teach. It's not through a miraculous individual work of the Holy Spirit on each one's heart, but rather God has clearly shown us that He's ordained, He has designed, He's set in place that there's only one way for people to be saved. And that's through hearing the Word of truth. Amen? In Romans, you don't get them to say amen very much, do you, Greg? In Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10 and verse 14. In Romans 10 and verse 14, after saying that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, he says, How then shall they call on him whom they've not heard? And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? Excuse me. Let me back up and read it correctly. How then shall they call on Him that they've not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now let's pause for a minute and we'll notice further point here. I understand that the immediate application of this text was during the time in which God was revealing His Word that had not yet been revealed through the apostles and through those who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so things were being revealed. The truth of God's Word was being revealed that had not previously been revealed. People were not knowing. They couldn't pick up a Bible and read and say, here's what I have to do to be saved. And so through the apostles, through those who were 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 given revelations. They were going out and they were preaching that Word being revealed. And so, how are they going to call on Him and who they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? But nonetheless, the principle still applies, no doubt, today. I know that people can pick up a Bible. You can get a Bible for a dollar nowadays. Not only that, you can download it on your phone for free. Bibles are everywhere, at least in this country, in America. 
But how many people do you know who picked up their Bible and they've read it and then they go out looking for a church that teaches what the Bible teaches so that they can be saved? I've heard of a couple. I've heard of a couple. That's not very many, is it? Most people are like the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I? Unless someone guides me. And so by principle, we still need people who are going to go out and that they're going to teach people the truth of the Gospel because no doubt, brethren, error is prevalent around us. And so, people have to hear the Gospel in order to be saved. Verse 15, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the Gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the Gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, verse 17, and hearing by the Word of God. God's ordained only one way for people to be saved. In 2 Corinthians, remember what we read a moment ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8? He's going to come with all of His angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Greg, understand there, in that context, he's talking about complete obedience to the end, obeying the Gospel. But they've got to obey it initially in order to be saved. Unless they obey the Gospel, they shall not be saved. And so, it's clear that God has placed the power of salvation in the Gospel message. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed, Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. God has placed the power for a person to be saved in the Gospel message. Not in a direct and miraculous working of the Holy Spirit in other ways that people try to argue and say is how that God saves us. It is by the Gospel message that He's chosen to save people. Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Do you still get those light bulb moments? You know, the younger you are, the more light bulb moments that you get because you're learning things. And, 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 and as you get older, you should still be getting all those light bulb moments, but we just get duller. <laughs> but, 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 you know, you still get those light bulb moments. And I usually suggest that I get these light bulb moments and somebody will say to you, it took you that long to figure it out? <laughs> but notice with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read the passage and then I want to share with you one of my light bulb moments. Verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We're going to read on. But what he said there is that it's foolishness. to people who are perishing and disregarded and they want nothing to do with it, to them it's foolishness. And they mock at it and they disregard it. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God has placed the power for salvation in the Gospel message. Drop down with me to verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached 
to save those who believe. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, I think we've proven the point which you already knew. There's only one way for people to be saved. And that's by hearing, believing, and obeying the gospel message. No other way. It won't happen. Here's my light bulb moment. I got to thinking about it one day. What if you were God? God is yearning. God gave Jesus to die that horrible death on the cross. He has done everything that He can. And He is yearning. He is waiting for someone, for people to, to hear the Gospel, to obey it, and to have their sins washed away. And what great rejoicing there is in heaven. If you were God, would you have designed it? Would you have chosen to save people? through the Gospel message? Putting your trust in you and me? Is He not putting His trust in His people? What a profound thought! People's souls, the world's souls are at stake! And there are countless religions that are teaching error about how to be saved. And there is a remnant of God's people and God has designed, I trust you. I trust you, Ken. I trust you, Greg. I trust you, Joe, wherever Joe is. I trust you, Sam, that you're going to go and you're going to talk to them because they can't be saved without hearing the Gospel message. I cannot, I will not save them any other way. And so I trust you. I trust you, my children that you will go to them and you will tell them of salvation in Jesus. God has put His trust in us, His people, to go into all the world, as He told the apostles, Mark 16, 15 and 16, and to preach the Gospel to them. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. He speaks in that context of how that He calls us through the Gospel message. Fellow workers with God. Now let me pause for a moment. God prepares us for every good work when He cleanses us of our sins. That doesn't mean, let me rephrase that or at least clear it up, that doesn't mean that when you're baptized into Christ, you're automatically completely fitted, and you should know how to do everything. That's not what I'm suggesting. And that's not what that passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 and 21 says. But until our sins are washed away, and unless we are walking in the light and keeping ourselves holy and pure, we are not useful to the Master. But here's my point. When we are baptized, when our sins are washed away, then we become useful to Him. Then, he can use us. And young people, you don't have to be 50, 40, 30, 20 in order to do this work that God wants done. I'm looking at you as you're spread out across the auditorium. 
And you know people and you will meet people that I will never see in my life. God's trusting you. If you are washed by the blood of Jesus, God's put His trust in you to be a fellow worker with Him. He is yearning to bring people to salvation in Christ. And He trusts that we, each one of us, will help them to hear that saving message. He's given us the privilege and the responsibility of rescuing them from the lake of fire. Turn with me to Jude. Jude verses 22 and 23. And he says, On some have, a, have compassion, making a distinction, but on others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. What I want us to notice is that phrase in verse 23. But others save with fear, pulling them. Some translations say snatching them out of the fire. If they do not hear, if they do not believe, if they do not obey, they will be destroyed in eternal destruction. And He wants us, if you will, to snatch them. Snatch them out of the fire. We live in Springfield, Illinois. We spent a lot of years in St. James, Missouri, by Rolla. We spent some years in Kansas City. We spent a couple years in the Fiji Islands. We went down there and, and took the Gospel and, and started the work there. We're in Springfield, Illinois right now. And I don't know how I sound to you because we are in Columbia, Tennessee. So I may sound like a fellow from Springfield to you. I don't know if I do or not. But I was actually born in the woods of northwest Alabama. We didn't move to the Chicago area, and all of Illinois is not Chicago. We didn't move to the Chicago area until I was seven years old. You know what happened in the South? A lot of people heard of those jobs up north, and they went north to get work back in the 50s and 60s. That was my dad. But I grew up as a little boy in the woods of Alabama. I followed my collie dog around the woods and came home and picked ticks. <laughs> I know what it's like to live in Alabama. In fact, we moved back to Alabama after we had been married for some time, and that's where I began to preach the gospel. Some of you may know a little country group down there by a rustic youth camp called Posey. The locals call it Pumpkin Center. That's where I preached my first sermon. And then I went to the training program with L.A. Stouffer in, in Kirkwood, Missouri for a couple years and, and then went out on my own working. But my point is, is while I was a little boy in Alabama, I know I had to have been seven or less because we moved when I was seven. There was etched in my mind this time, it was in the fall, we'd raked up all the leaves and we'd picked up all the limbs. Mom and Dad had us out there working and, and we're burning all of that. And Dad had a lumber pile that he didn't have covered up and so some of the boards had become rotten. And so he wanted us to take those rotten boards that were no longer useful and burn those. And so we're going over there and we're getting the planks and we're pulling the planks out and we're taking them over and throwing them on the fire. And you know what happened as we got down lower in the pile where the moisture and the rot was? So I had this old rotten plank, this old rotten board, and I took it and I threw it on the fire. And I noticed all of a sudden after I threw it on the fire, it's covered in bugs. 
And my little tender six or seven year old heart was, was feeling, this is horrible. And I grabbed that board and I yanked it out of the fire so those bugs wouldn't get burned up. That's what he just told us to do with our fellow man and Jude. Snatch them out of the fire. How horrible that those bugs were going to burn that horrible death in the fire. It's nothing compared to eternity of not being obedient to the Lord. And so he says, tell them. Tell them so that they can be saved. That's a long introduction, huh? Now the main point of our sermon. I'm being facetious, but this is the main point that I want us to get to. Young people, you are indeed useful to the Lord. All of us who are cleansed and are walking in the light, we're all useful. We ought to be useful to the Lord. But young people, you are useful. He will use you. He wants people to come to know Him. He wants them to be saved. And so if you've been moved by His Word in any way to realize this horrible destiny and how much God is yearning and that there's only one way to be saved. I hope that it's in your mind. What can I do? What good would God want me to do? And what a good question. Let's just pose that question for a moment. Let's imagine, if you will, that we could speak to God and we could ask God, God, I realize that people are lost. I want to do something. I, I want to help them to be saved. What can I do in Columbia, Tennessee in 2017? How do I approach people? What do I say to them? What can I do to help people to be saved? Wouldn't it be wonderful to speak to God and ask God, give me instruction, tell me what to do. So let's imagine. Let's imagine that we've asked God, Lord, what do You want me to do? How do I go about this? What might He say to us? Well, I think we can be relatively certain of some of the things that He would say to us. Some of the things that He would say to us are timeless. I think one of the first things that He might say to us, Lord, I'm, we're serious. We want to help people to be saved. Lord, what can I do? I think one of the things He would tell us is love them. Love them. You've got someone in mind. You've got all the world in mind. You've got your schoolmates, workmates, neighbors, relatives in mind. Love them. Isn't that what He tells us? He tells us, Matthew 22, that the greatest command is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Or at least our heart, soul, and mind. Heart, soul, and strength. Hear, O Israel. Um, and the second one is like it. That we love our neighbor... As ourselves. Matthew 22, verse 39. And he tells us, does he not? In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14, he's given instructions to these believers, telling them of the things that they need to put on, that is, the characteristics that they need to nurture in order to be what they ought to be as, as His children. In fact, let's just read in verse 12, and our main point is going to be in verse 14, because we're going to come right back at least and mention this in a moment. In verse 12, He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, 
Notice what he says. Put on tender mercies. Tenderness isn't a word we use a lot nowadays. And it means exactly what it sounds like. Be tender-hearted. Be merciful. Put on tender mercies. Tender mercies. Kindness. Humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, even if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you so you also must do. So he's told some pretty, pretty important things, characteristics for a Christian. Tender mercies, kindness, long-suffering, and such. But he says in verse 14, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. More important than these things of tender mercies and kindness and long-suffering, more important than that, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I like being around loving people, don't you? It makes for a good atmosphere. It makes for good family. It makes for good friends. It makes for good neighbors. And if we will love people, yeah, young people, some will make fun of you. Some will, some will maybe try to take advantage of it. But God sees. And God will reward. Let's love them. Because people are going to respond to that. When people, I did some research last year. I do a preacher training week in southern Illinois and L.A. Stouffer and J.R. Brunger and Gail Tolles and my son Marshall co-teach with me. And this year in, in the evangelism classes that I do, I did a series called The Decline of the American Church of denominations and sadly some of our brethren. 4,000 churches a year are closing their doors and 1,000 are starting up. The church is indeed in a decline. Christianity is indeed in a decline. When talking to people, when surveying them, and, and I did a lot of research with the Barna Group and with the Pew Research Center, and in a Approaching people and asking them, if you were to visit a church on Sunday, what is the most important thing to you? What do you want to see in that group? What is the most important thing that you want to see in that church that you visit? Do you want to guess what the answer is? It may surprise you a little bit. It's love. That's the most important thing that people who are not Christians, who aren't attending a church, they want to see love. But it's not that they want you to come and to flood them, that they want you all gathering around them, showing them love and making them welcome. They want to be a fly on the wall. They want to sit on the back pew and they want to observe. What they want to see is, do you love one another? That's what the world is looking for. This comes from the Barna Group. They're looking to see because they want to see if you are a people of love. When people think about God and Christians in the church, the number one thing they think of is love. Now, they may have some skewed ideas about that, but they are right. The greatest of these is love. Above all these things, 
Put on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 14. He says, let all that you do be done in love. And concerning evangelism and the importance of love in evangelism. In Mark chapter 6 verse 34, it says that Jesus, when He walked out, that they saw the great multitudes and He was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and He taught them many things. That's Mark 6 verse 34. And so when Jesus saw the people, He didn't walk out and see this huge crowd and say, wow, what an important preacher I am. Wow, look at the numbers today. No, He walked out and He looked at them and He was moved with compassion. That idea, in the original language, it means to have the bowels. And we don't use that word very often. And when we do, it's not the bowels the Bible's talking about. It's talking about the seat of your emotions. Have you ever, young ladies, you ever had that guy that you were really hoping and that he invites you out on a date and your stomach just kind of flutters? <laughs> Remember on Bambi, the movie Bambi, about how that they said that the one was Twitter-pated? <laughs> and so it's the idea of having your insides to move with emotion. And so when Jesus looked, He was moved with compassion. He loved the people. And the people responded to Him, did they not? If we will be a people of love, young people, don't worry about being cool. Don't worry about fitting in. Worry about fitting in with God and being what God wants you to be. Love people. Show love to everybody. And when they are looking to make a change, when they are looking for salvation or to come to know more about God, or when you talk to them about the Lord, there's going to be a better chance that they're going to respond favorably. And one other point on that, when Jesus, the rich young ruler in Mark's account, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 21, rich young ruler came and he knelt down at Jesus' feet and he said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He, after responding, and then Jesus responds back, the text tells us in Mark 10 and verse 21, that Jesus looked at him and loved him. You ever look at people that are lost and you feel compassion for them? You ever look at people that are lost and you feel pity for them? You ever look at people that are lost and you just feel love for them? That's what God wants us to be. It's enough that we be like our Master. That we be like our Teacher. We look at people that are lost and we need to love them. I think we could be safe in saying that God would want us that would be part of His advice that He would give us. Second thing, I think He would tell us to be kind. Because didn't He already tell us that? Remember what we read a moment ago in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13? To put on tender mercies, kindness. Kindness means that you're thinking of the other person. And motivated from that love, you do something good for them. Whether it is holding a door, whether it is, is helping them in some way, whether it's just a kind expression of your face. We are to put on kindness. And the world's lacking in that. Just drive down Interstate 65 and kindness is missing. Brethren, young people, be kind. Be kind and gentle like our Lord was. Yeah, people may try to take advantage of it. 
but it's what God wants you to do. And it will make you more credible in sharing with them the gospel. Another point? Do good. Do good to people. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, when Peter had come into the home of Cornelius and he asked Cornelius what he had sent him for and Cornelius told him about the angel appearing and then Peter begins his discourse and in verse 38, as he's preaching about Jesus, he said, how that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Isn't it interesting that he says how that he went about doing good and healing? Sometimes we might think that, well, it's just a byproduct. The doing good was just a byproduct. He had to do these miracles to prove to everyone that he was Jesus, the Son of God. Yes! John tells us that at the end of his Gospel, that he did these things, and they were recorded so that we might believe. But he also did them to do good to people. God does good to us every day in the psalm. It tells us of how that He heaps blessings upon us. He loads us with blessings day by day. Should we not be a people of blessing? That we are blessing others? That we are doing good for them? Let's love them. Let's be kind. Let's do good. Galatians 6 and verse 10, do good unto all men, especially to the household of faith. I think another thing the Lord might tell us is talk. <laughs> Say something. <laughs> How many of us have not said anything to anyone about Jesus? How many of us have not said anything this week? The last two weeks? The last month? I think God might say, talk, tell them, say something. What do I say? That's the problem. I'm scared. I don't know what to say. I wasn't baptized till I was 20 years old. Penny was 19. We had come out of the world. I was uh, um, uh, uh, living a bad life. And I wanted to change. When we were taught the truth, in my naive heart, I remember to this day thinking, true, we have found the true church. This is it. We found it. I understood before I became a Christian, Ephesians chapter 4, that there is one church, one body. I understood that. And I remember thinking, these are God's people. This is God's family. Everybody loves one another. All these people are going to heaven. That's the way it should be, isn't it? So that's the way I thought it was when I was so naive and young as a Christian. But it ought to be that way. But I remember thinking, this is so great. This is so wonderful. And it's easy enough to understand. Why aren't more people obeying the Gospel? Why aren't more people becoming Christians? And I was thinking about this person and that person, this person, that person. And when it came time, it kind of came to halt. What do I say? I don't know what to tell them. And what if they're interested? I, I don't know what to teach them. Fortunately, we went through evangelism classes and were taught how to do Bible studies and to teach people. But let me say this to all. When God might tell us, and He does tell us in the Scriptures to talk, to teach them the Gospel, 
all of us can tell people about the Lord. You don't have to know a boatload of Scriptures. And you don't have to have all your T's crossed and your I's dotted, though you do not want to teach anything that is not accurate. But here's what I'm wanting to suggest to you. All of us can tell others what the Lord has done for us. But wait a minute. That's like the denominations giving their testimony and witnessing. No, not at all. They can do what they want to do and they can call it what they want to call it. But I know what the Scriptures say. And the Scriptures say in in Mark chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, that when that demonic who was named Legion, who wanted to go with the Lord, the Lord got into the boat and He begged Jesus, let me go with you. And Jesus told him, no, but return to your home and to your family and tell them what wonderful things the Lord has done for you. And so he returned to Decapolis and he preached the word he told to everybody throughout Decapolis. That word Decapolis means ten cities. He told them what the Lord had done for him. We can do that. And that's a start. That's not the end. But that's a start. Paul told people his story in First Timothy chapter one, verses twelve and thirteen. I was, I was arrogant. I was an insolent man. I was a persecutor of the church. But God, using me as an example through His grace, was patient with me. We can talk. Let's build on our Bible knowledge. Let's build on our remembering verses. But until you're there, talk to people. Tell them how wonderful the Lord is and what He's done for you. And we all can invite. The example that we are so often pointed to in John chapter 1, verses 40-46, through 46, that when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world... Andrew went and found Peter. Philip went and found Nathaniel. And Nathaniel actually gave pushback. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. I may not know everything. I may not even know really what to say. But I can say, come and see. And it looks like a lot of you have said that this week leading up. Come and see. Come and be with us. Come and worship the Lord. We all can do that. We can invite to... Worship services, we can invite to Bible studies, we can invite to, to gospel singings, we can invite to young people's gatherings. All of us can invite. Isn't it profound that God allows us to become workers with Him, helping Him to accomplish that which is dearest to His heart, the salvation of those who are lost. Will you be a part? Will you help? Will you prepare yourself? All you've got to do is make up your mind that you are going to open up your mouth and you are going to talk to people and tell them the goodness of the Lord. You're going to show them love and kindness. And you're going to do good to others. When you do that, it creates credibility. You know what the second thing is as we close and as we substantiate that point. You know what the second thing is according to the Barna group that people are looking for when they come into a church? 
I know. Oftentimes we think they're looking for the Christian rock group. They're looking for the entertainment. Do you know that actually today people are starting to leave churches for that reason? People are leaving churches because of the Christian rock groups and the entertainment. They say, if we want a concert, we'll go to a concert. We want to go to worship the Lord. There's a lot of good things happening. But the second thing that people are looking for is they're looking to see if the church is genuine. Are they praising the Lord? Are they opening up their heart? Are they into this or are they just filling a pew? People are looking at us to see if we're genuine. And when they find out that we are genuine, that gives us credibility and we can have influence. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our holy and righteous Father in heaven, to You be the glory, Father. Father, we bow our knee before You to give You the, the honor that is due to You. Father, we know that You are a God of great and tender mercy and love and that You want people to be saved and that You've designed it that You will use us, that we can join in this work and that we can help people to know what Your Word is so that they can have their sins washed away. Use us as You need us, Father. Help us not to be afraid. Help us to be prepared. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not really sure if there's going to be an invitation song that is offered, but if for some reason you have decided this hour that you want to become a Christian, Greg can take care of that, so I'll just default to Greg. But I do encourage you all, my brothers and sisters, let's make a commitment. We're going to be workers for the Lord.
take a short break. We're going to be back here at 7 o'clock for another lesson. We'll also have a little more time to do a little bit more singing at that time. So we hope that you all can come back at 7 o'clock for a, another period of worship and Bible study. Thank you for being here tonight, or this afternoon. Uh, thanks to so many of you who have traveled a good long way to be with us. Our young people have some uh, uh, made some plans for the inter- time here between these two meetings, and if you're one of the young people visiting with us and you're not aware of what some of those plans are, speak to some of them and they'll let you know uh, what they have in mind. Uh, but again, we thank you all for being here, and we hope that you can come back at 7 and join us for another period of worship. We're going to be dismissed in a word of prayer. I see Dan Edwards back there. Dan, will you come to the front and lead us in a word of prayer? bow with me, please. Most righteous and loving Heavenly Father, as we close this portion of this service, Father, we're so thankful that we've been able to come out tonight and have this opportunity to break the bread of life, to learn these good things with our brother, and we're thankful for this meeting that this congregation has planned and purposed. We pray that many good things will be achieved here tonight and tomorrow. And we pray, Father, that if there be any one who is considering becoming a Christian or even being restored, that they would give that strong consideration tonight to make that part of their new journey, new walk in Christ. We're thankful for the lesson, Father. So many good points, so many things that we need to take to heart and do the fact that you have trust us with such a enormous task and responsibility, but yet have given us and equipped us with the word that, that we can preach to others, that we can go into all the world and pull people out of the fire. We hope, Father, that all of us will rededicate ourselves to that mission and that we would be the type of servants that our Lord and Savior would have us to be. Father, we again thank you for this assembly. We pray that everybody will be safe and be able to be back in just a few moments to hear another great sermon from your word. We pray that you would... Also, bless those that are having to leave tonight and keep them safe. We pray, Father, that, again, we will try to always strive to emulate Christ in His, in His ways. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.